Late last year, a well-known rideshare app and a gaming company were hacked using well-crafted social engineering attacks. In September of last year, London police arrested a 17-year-old on suspicion of both hackings. The suspect in both cases is known as Teapot Uber Hacker, or Teapot. Social engineering involves a threat actor working directly with an individual target, manipulating them into doing something that helps the attacker reach their goals. Phishing emails, phone calls, known as vishing, and SMS messages are favored tactics. The goal, regardless of the vector, is almost always to get account credentials from the target. And these kind of attacks are often a very effective way to circumvent even the most robust security measures like multi-factor authentication. Today, we're talking to a professional hacker known online as Snow, who has a solid working theory on how the rideshare and gaming company attacks happened. Snow's take? Teapot may have purchased already stolen credentials of users off the dark web, then used that data to research the target victims, and then combine both sources of information to engineer highly targeted attacks. Which raises the question, is your information out on the dark web? If so, how valuable is it to criminals and how can they use it? Let's find out. Join me as we venture into the breach. Snow, thank you for joining the podcast. It is really good to have you on here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be speaking with you. Well, okay, so first and foremost, I have to know, and I don't know if you've covered this in many of your copious interviews lately, but what is the genesis of your uh, of your handle? What is the genesis of Snow? Ooh, that's a good question. I actually don't get asked that a lot. And I think it's because people assume it has to do with the weather, which it doesn't. I've had the nickname Snow since I was 16 before I even decided I wanted to be a hacker. So it was kind of handy when I decided I wanted to get an infosec and everyone had handles. I'm like, well, I already have one. So it actually comes from my love of Disney, uh, specifically Snow White. And it was just a trip to Disneyland with a bunch of friends. And somehow I got the nickname Snow and it is just stuck with me since. Well, I, I like that story, actually. Um, cool that you're, you know, a Disney fan and yep. it's stuck with you since then. My nickname in high school still sticks with me, too. But it is Moose, and I don't know that that's a really good like, online <laughs> handle. I think it's because I'm big and stupid. Oh, anyway, no. so let's start off. Speaking of, you know, vocabulary questions, let's start off with another one. And, you know, cue your fourth grade English teacher. When you describe what you do for people... Do you say ethical hacker? Do you say white hat hacker? I know that's kind of fallen off the radar as far as um, what's appropriate to say. Do you prefer one or the other and why? That is a great question. So I don't say white hat or ethical. I just say hacker. And the reason why is because when we think of, think of any other profession, right? A veterinarian, someone who works at accounting, a lawyer, any of these these roles, we don't add the word ethical or white hat in front of it. It's it's implied. It's what they do, right? So I'm a hacker. It's my job. If I were to do it unethically, I would be a criminal. So I'm not a fan of adding that that kind of, you know, that that verb in front, right? Whatever that is. I'm I'm just a hacker. That's that's what I do. Yeah. I, I get it because I if I saw somebody listed as an ethical doctor, I probably would be a little, you know, cautious about um exactly. procuring that individual services. So all right. Yes. So you're a hacker. Yes. And when you're at a party, I assume that's tell people that's what you tell people you do for work. 
Well, I like to keep it a little provocative to <laughs> keep the conversation fun. Uh, someone asked me what I do, especially if they're not like in InfoSec or anything like that. I will say I break into buildings or I lie to people for a living, Ooh. which immediately has a million follow-up questions, which is so much fun. What's funny, too, is when they have those follow-up questions, they always whisper. It's like, oh, shit, I'm talking to a bad guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but then, then I kind of explain what they do. And I'm like, oh, OK, that's cool. You can actually do that for a living. So it's it's a pretty fun way to answer what I do. I actually have a fun story. So I was sitting in the Amsterdam airport. I was just got done doing a physical security assessment. So I got done breaking into a building. And I was talking to the, the gentleman next to me, or just small talk talking about going back to the States. He's like, so what do you do? And I, I gave him that that high level answer, right? I, I just, I break into buildings. And he pauses. He's like, oh, okay. And I said, what do you do? He's like, I'm a pastor. And then without skipping a beat, he's like, can I pray for you? I was like, sure, I'll take prayer. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> then I had awesome. to explain it, but yeah. So did he, did his, his prayers change after you, you explained what you did? Pro, yeah, yeah, actually it did. Yep. All right. All right. Well, we will we will not try to save your soul on this podcast. <laughs> There's no hope. That, well, and I arguably for me as well. So, all right. So let's talk about attacks and specific kinds of attacks. Spear phishing and social engineering are two types that I think people get a little bit confused about. So tell me what makes them different. That is a good question, especially if you go through looking at different you know, media or resources, everyone uses different types of social engineering terms interchangeably, and they're all very different. So I like to explain social engineering as like an umbrella, right? That is the the way that someone is attacking you. Typically, it's either through remote or on-site. But when we look at the type of phishings, right? So spear phishing is a type of phishing, which is done, an attack done via email, and that's targeting someone or a very small group of people. And when I say targeting, I mean, it's very customized. Instead of sending out like a mass phishing campaign, right, your Office 365 password needs to be reset. This is very customized. I know exactly what kinds of tools they're using, what their interests are, and it's very custom to that person. So that's a type of social engineering attack. Then you also have phishing or voice phishing. And that's another one that we're starting to see a little bit more of. Ooh, and we are going to talk a little bit more about that too, because I want to know what you know about Teapot. And that was the individual that was what was attributed to the Uber and Rockstar hacks. Yeah. And you were in an article recently talking about both of those attacks. And I have followed up on the media a little bit. And I, the 17-year-old who who was known as Teapot, right, was apparently arrested in England back in September, but I can't find any information on whether or not there was any actual prosecution on that. But you wrote this article about these attacks. And so tell me a little bit about what you know. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things that he pointed on is they were 17 years old. And I'm going to go down a rabbit hole for a second. I think we're going to see a huge increase of younger and younger people um, doing these types of of, I'm going to call them criminal, right? Because it's not ethical. But these types of attacks, and I I don't know, I think that's something we're just going to see so much more of. But yeah, it was this young person who who claimed to have hacked, I believe it was Uber and Rockstar. And the, the attacks were pretty similar, so I wouldn't be surprised, surprised if it was the same person. But they utilize social engineering. You know, it's very smart because I think 
a lot of people who do want to, you know, hack an organization, a lot of times they want to be able to sit behind their computer. They don't want to interact with someone. And this individual did. They actually called people. And we can we could talk about that shortly, too. But they were arrested. And I also haven't seen, you know, what's came of that. Every once in a while, I kind of look and see, but nothing yet. So I'm, yeah, I'm me too. curious what happens. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't read any follow. So I do want to talk about these attacks, though, because in your article, you mentioned something kind of interesting. And you said that your assumption was that this individual teapot actually purchased credentials off the dark web for the person that they were targeting for this social engineering and spear phishing attack. What makes you think that? So there's a couple of different ways you can get those those stolen credentials. Um, one is you could steal them yourselves, right? Yourself, you can send them a phishing email and get them that way. I don't believe that any of those two companies put out information that they had already been compromised that way. And so the other way to get those credentials is to buy stolen stolen credentials. A lot of times we see them on the dark web. Unfortunately, it's pretty easy to buy. And I'm assuming they were going after very specific people based off their roles and what they had access to, right? That makes them so much more of a high value target because you know that they have access to the things that you want. You don't have to jump through all these hoops or just kind of cross your fingers and hope they do. So my assumption is that they targeted an individual or, or a few individuals very specifically and then went on most likely the dark web and tried to find their credentials and and probably got luck and got them. Well, that is a little spooky. Do you think that this is why these attacks work so well was because of this sort of like background information that was like alarmingly easy to get? Yeah, I think that absolutely helps aid any type of attack. The more information, as I as I do these types of attacks, the more information I can find on a certain individual or even a company in general, the higher my odds are because then you can really customize your attacks to that person. And again, those odds just go up tremendously the more that we know about someone. They also utilize uh, social engineering in their attacks, which helps tremendously rather than just, you know, trying to get in through a vulnerability or something like that. They, they targeted this person, they understood them, and then they use multiple levels of social engineering, which I thought was pretty smart. So when you use social engineering for your profession and you're hired by, you know, company X to see if you can break into their systems and you, you know, you, you pick a couple targets inside that company that you want to go after. What do you, let's say you're picking on me. Let's just pick me for an example. So sure. you're, you're trying to get into X-Force <laughs> and you pick Mitch Main. And what would you look at from a social media perspective to find information on me? Yeah. So I would probably start with LinkedIn. That's a pretty big one. I would try to see who you're connected with to, to try to, you know, document those relationships. So I know who you're probably emailing with the most, just so I might want to impersonate them. But also see what kinds of things you do in your day-to-day -day role. A lot of people like to put that on LinkedIn. So they might say they work with certain types of software or individuals or departments within their company. So that's that's like one of the places I start with the absolute first because a lot of times I get tons of information there. And then from there, I spider into different social media. So, you know, your Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, things like that, because then you can kind of understand a little bit more about the individual, kind of what makes them tick. Do they have hobbies? Have been traveling a lot? Any little piece of information like that. So as I think about, okay, 
what I want from them, which might be your your credentials. Then I think about, okay, if I was this individual and I received an email, what would I want to click on? Why would I want to give those credentials? And being able to to really get a peek at who they are through social media is is really helpful. Well, there's a little scary application of psychology <laughs> right there. It is. Yeah. So you talked about the dark web. Let's <laughs> talk about that specifically and how much data is out there on uh, everyday people. What percent of people do you think have information for sale on the dark web and what kind is it? So it's really hard to put a percentage around it. However, I would say if you have signed up for multiple types of accounts, banking, social media, right, what have you, and that company gets breached, which happens all of the time, I would be willing to say that your information is somewhere on the dark web. So I don't know if I were to have to guess a percentage, probably at least 80, right? That's it has to be so high. I feel like every time I look at the news, there's a new company getting breached, right? There is. Yeah, it's just it's insane how much that's out there. Now, what kind of information you can have any. I think the biggest one that I see is credentials, right? For either social media or bank accounts. And those like social media accounts, those typically go for like about $20 for credentials. But if we want to look at like banking or like PayPal, things like that, those can go typically around like $75 to $100. Which is still cheap. It, it really is, right? If you think about that money that you have access to, albeit probably a short amount of time, $100 is is pretty cheap if you're getting a couple grand out of it, right? Mm, Another bad ROI. Yeah. So have you ever looked out there on the dark web to see what's out there on you? Um, I have. So the dark web's kind of tricky. It doesn't, it's not like it's just a Google where you can search for something and, and find it. You have to know specific sites that you want to go look for or onion sites, they're called. So it gets really, really tricky. There's a good handful of paid for services that, that make it a lot more convenient. But I have definitely tried to find myself on, on the dark web, on, on the regular web. And there's absolutely things out there that I'm trying to find. A good place to start is it's called Have I Been Pwned? But that's. Oh, no, spell a, that. Spell that. So have I Been Pwned? P O N E D? P W N E D. Pwned. Uh, okay. But that's a really good one. And that's that's a free site. You just go to it and you you give them your email address. And what it does is it tells you how many breaches that email address is. So what the uh, the person who, uh, Tony Hunt, I believe his name is, um, who runs that website, he goes and every time there's a breach and, and he can get his hands on that data, he just has this huge database. So if you put in your email address, it will tell you not only how many breaches, but what breaches your email's been in, which is pretty insane to see so if that's the case you're absolutely on on the dark web and you know most people have more than one email address so it's kind of scary i think the last time i looked one of my email addresses was in like 12 breaches like it's just insane how many it's 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 out there yep well i mean you raise a good point you don't really open your email these days without finding or open the news and find that something someone's been breached and i i think for me personally i can probably tell you six off the top of my head that I've been part of. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, you know, probably a little higher than average, you know, computer user, but still that's a that's a pretty scary stat. Right. So if you have email out there, what else, you know, can people find out there? Let's pick on you though. Let's go sure. back to you. Yeah. So you've looked for yourself and you probably have a more carefully crafted footprint than most of us do. What did you find out about yourself out there? 
So other than being in data breaches, I also found my home address. I found Ooh. phone numbers, which is terrifying, right? Just just having that out there. And what it comes down to is when I sign up for different services, either it maybe it's a free service, but there's no such thing as a free service, let me tell you, because then your data gets sold. Or if I was in a data breach of some sort where the company that was breached had my my information, right? My driver's license, my phone number, my IP address, whatever they have, um, the attackers could get that information as well. So lots of information. And I think a lot of people, when they think of what information of theirs is online, I think a good handful of people are now wrapping their head around, okay, you know, maybe my username and password from a breach. But oftentimes we don't think about our phone number and our, our address and driver's license number and things like that are absolutely things that I've found online against myself. Driver's license number is pretty spooky as well, because that yeah. is, at least in the state of California, is linked to so many different things yes. that you have to use. What about social security number? Have you ever found yours out there? I've been lucky where I haven't found mine yet. I'm sure I'm sure it's going to be out there eventually. <laughs> but that is something that we find a lot. We'll do these types of, we call them OSINT. It stands for Open Source Intelligence. But we'll do these kinds of these gatherings to really see what kind of digital footprint we can find, either on a company or like an executive. And oftentimes we can find find socials and, and things like that, which is pretty scary, actually. Well, yes. And cue the reminder to freeze your credit, folks. It's yes. actually pretty easy. So if a layperson, and we don't advise this, so I, we should preface that with, uh, with that statement. If a layperson wanted to, you know, I don't know, surf out there on the dark web to see what information was available to them. How would they do that? Or even should they do that? Yeah, I would say don't waste your time. Go to the website like Have I Been Pwned. It's Have I Been Pwned, it's P-W-N-E-D dot com. And look up your email address. And that right there is going to tell you if you are or not. Another service that I like to use, it's a paid for service. I don't get paid to like promote them. I just really, really like them. But it's called Delete Me. And what they do, they're constantly looking at different types of websites, people, white pages, all kinds of places where your information might be listed at. And they will actually go and fight on your behalf to get that removed from online. So just because you know you have your address out there doesn't necessarily mean you can't remove it. So this that that service, Delete Me, is one of my favorites, and I highly recommend it. I actually give it as Christmas presents. It's it's such a great service. Wow. Uh, that actually does sound pretty cool. So Delete Me could actually go out to, like, say, my cell carrier and say, remove Mitch Main's number from his name, blah, 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 something like that? Yeah, yeah. Or I uh, know a lot of times when people buy houses, their, their address will get put on different kinds of websites or name and address. But what they'll do is they'll go and they search those websites, and if they find them, they yeah, they they just work on your behalf and say, we want you to remove this. There are ways you can do it yourself, but it gets pretty tricky. But a lot of a lot of websites that have that, um, it's just it's convenient, right? Well, tricky and time consuming, I would imagine, yes, because there's probably very. there's probably more than one out there with uh, names and address. Yeah, absolutely. So, talk to me about words of advice from two perspectives. One, um, for companies like Uber and Rockstar, who you know have these extremely well crafted social media attacks aimed at them, how can they help avoid being victimized? Yeah. So from that company perspective, I think paying more attention to social engineering. A lot of times organizations, when they think of getting hacked, they don't they don't put as much effort into social engineering. 
And when I say that, I mean, they actually need to train their employees what that looks like. A lot of times when I review security awareness training, um, they're not great. They're really bad. <laughs> and they'll say things like, if someone calls you, don't give them your password. Right. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm not going to call and some, ask someone for their password. I'm going to call and be like, hey, I need you to go to this website and log in. And then I get their password, right? There's there's a lot of tricks that attackers are doing that aren't covered in that training. And when organizations give their employees a once a year training for one hour, they can't expect them to like fight off every type of attack they're going to get because it's going to be insane. But to really make sure that they're investing into their employees to train them what these attack looks like and and how to report them and and making sure that they're investing into their employees, I bet we'll see a huge decrease of these type of attacks. So didn't the Uber, didn't Teapot during the Uber attack, um, they actually combined a couple of different methodologies for social engineering, right? And one of them was I was spear phishing and the other was vishing, right? So yeah. talk to me about like what happened there. Yeah, so I might be getting the two attacks confused, but how how one of them worked out is they had sent the the phishing email to their target, right, to the, that employee, and they impersonated help desk or the IT. And that's really smart because that, that builds trust right away, right? We're used to seeing information from IT and help desk. However, they needed to get that that SMS code or that that text message for the multi-factor authentication. And so what they actually did, yeah, is they called that employee after sending an email. So they're also adding a little bit more credibility to themselves, right? Like, hey, I sent you that email, but they got that code that way. Now, in the other one, they did something pretty tricky, too. And they called it's like push notification spamming. So while they had that username and password that they probably purchased, they had it. However, they got to that next screen. It's like you, you need to approve. And how that company had it set up was on the employee's phone. They just had to, they had to see, oh, I'm trying to access this, approve or deny, right? And so typically, if you do that over and over, it's just going to annoy someone until they finally approve it. And that's what happened, which is kind of terrifying. That's another reason why I'm not a fan of push notifications for MFA. Sometimes you could accidentally hit the wrong one too. I'm, I like more of being able to actually put that code in. Um, so they use definitely different techniques for for these attacks and and they layer them together, which again is from an attacker point of view, that's brilliant and it's smart. From a company point of view, it's kind of scary that, you know, they can combine those types of attacks to make it more realistic. Well, it also does something else that I'm sitting here thinking about, and that's this sort of illusion that so many companies have that we have MFA so we're safe. Yes. That one terrifies me because we are able to bypass it all the time, especially our adversary simulation team. Like it's it's candy to them, right? It's easy. It's it's fun. Uh, it's nothing to hide behind. I think it's a great tool to have and absolutely everyone should do it. And it, it's probably stops quite a few attacks, especially uh, maybe attackers who are new to trying to to bypass it. But it doesn't mean that you're 100 percent safe by any means. Well, and cue the next question back to the words of advice. What would you tell average citizens? So like, think about your mom. You already said you're getting her, you know, a delete me for Christmas. Yeah. So think about your mom. Like, what do you tell your mom to do or not to do? So there's two things that I tell her that she should always enable. Um, that That is MFA. I think that is a great tool and everyone should have it. 
Um, the other one is a password manager. And so that really lets you keep those long, complex passwords that are unique for every site. And that's that's kind of the key here is that they're unique for every site. Because if you think about it, if you are an attacker and you fish someone for their credentials, maybe for their, let's just say their bank credentials, the average user uses the same password across multiple sites, right? That's normal, especially for for older folks, it's easy to remember. And so what they can do is, okay, they, now they have their bank information. They go and try to log into your Facebook with the same username and password, and it works. And so that's why it's really important to have that, that password manager set up because then you have different passwords for each site. And if you have that MFA, that's just kind of a stopgap to, uh, to hopefully stop that attacker in their tracks. Well, password managers are, I, I know so many people who don't have them. And yeah. I, you know, you, you know, these people too. Yep. And they're the people with the like, oh, well, my passwords are in a locked Excel on my desktop. So I'm fine. How difficult or easy are those to use? I think they have came such a long way and they're really, really easy. I have, I have an app on my phone now. So if I'm on the go and, and want to log into things, it's super convenient. I have it on my, my computer. Really, it's just setting it up. And it takes a while, right? As as you start to log into all of your, your websites, you have to add it. And it doesn't take long. Once you can get past the, the setup, it's it's worth it to me. I think it's it's not as much of a pain as most people think it's going to be. All right. There you go, folks. Two-factor authentication and passwords. Any final words on, uh, well, I just want to end with like, what has been your most interesting experience so far this calendar year with uh, with breaking into buildings and being mm-hmm. prayed for in the airport? Yeah, yeah. Um, so my most interesting experience, I would have to say that was from a client who they had hired us to try to get into one of their new locations. And they were very confident that we weren't going to be able to because they spent a lot of money on their physical security controls, right? They had all of the latest and greatest, like I'm talking millions of dollars to like keep people who were not authorized out of their building. And within, I think the first 15 minutes on site, we were just able to talk to someone and get right in. And that's, to me, that's, that's still terrifying because a lot of people put a lot of faith into the technology that they use, or they'll see the amount of money they put into it. And that just goes to show like, right, we, we also need policies and training and procedures and all of these other things. We can't just kind of plug something in and, and think that it works. So I think to me, that's kind of been my most eye-opening thing that there's, there's companies out there still doing that. And, you know, I, I think we'll get there, but it's just taking a while until we realize that we can't put, you know, blind faith in into products. Well, all this stuff sounds a lot like, you know, basic human error and like humans trying to be nice. So it's like, you can't, you can't buy that, right? That doesn't come off a shelf from any software vendor. So right there you go. Well, Snow, thanks for joining. I really have enjoyed this conversation. This stuff is absolutely fascinating. So um, I appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. A special thanks to our guest, Snow or Stephanie Carruthers, for her time and insight for this episode. If you want to hear more stories like this, make sure to subscribe to Into the Breach on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You've been listening to Into the Breach, an IBM production. This episode was produced by Zach Ortega, and our music was composed by Jordan Wallace. Thanks for venturing Into the Breach.